Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, I am Sam Fry and this is the Technique Podcast, back with the first episode of 2019. Welcome back, everyone. For those that haven't listened before, this is where myself and Richard F. Adams speak to artists about how they work with technology. Sometimes we speak to formal artists and other times with people that would call themselves technologists. Either way, they explore what it means to be creative and artistic when working with tech. So, whether you're an artist, a coder, or someone who wants to understand how creative work is made, then you are very welcome. Right, you're probably wondering who I am speaking to today. Well, I'll let you know after this. Today I'm speaking to both halves of recovering theatre company Fanshen. The first half is Dan. I'm Dan, I'm artistic director of Fanshen, which basically just means that I co-run the company with Rachel and work creatively on all the projects. And then there's Rachel. I'm Rachel, I'm creative director of Fanshen uh, because Dan and I wanted different job titles, but we co-run the company together. Fanshen make creative experiences. Both Dan and Rachel started the company back in 2007, and since then they've created many different pieces and collaborated with some brilliant, creative people. Talking of which, this episode features one of those creative people. I'm Joe. I'm a computational artist, and I work with Dan and Rachel on a number of projects, including the Justice Syndicate. Joe McAllister is our final guest for the episode. As he says, he is a computational artist who has an interest in themes like metadata and security. We actually had him speak at one of our technique events before at IBM, where he talked about some of his artificially intelligent art. Today, though, the three of them are going to talk about the Justice Syndicate, a piece of interactive theatre that gathers 12 audience members to take on the role of jurors. To start, though, I asked Dan and Rachel more generally about Fanchen. We call ourselves a recovering theatre company or an ex-theatre company because we started Fanchen in 2007. Mm-hmm. 2007. And we both come from a theatre background and both trained as directors and I trained as a writer. And at that point we were doing plays where, you know, there were people on a stage pretending the audience weren't there, pretending they were someone else. And gradually, over the last 10 years, we sort of moved away from that and now make what we call, I guess, audience-centric work. I don't know, I just, I get frustrated with the word immersive now. Just everything is immersive. And I think actually nothing is immersive apart from jumping in a swimming pool. For us, it means that the show couldn't take place if the audience weren't there. So for me, as a theatre example, Punch Drunk isn't audience-centric because I think it could still happen if the people, the audience people in masks weren't there. But for us, the Justice Syndicate, which is the piece that we have on imminently, without the audience there, it's 12 iPads sitting on a table. Because we really like to make work where it's all about the audience, and why we don't call it interactive performance, I guess, is because a lot of interactive performance is about the audience interacting with a a performer of some kind. And what technology enables you to do is have a space where it's, it's only the audience members interacting with each other, and it's the technology that somehow prompts the interaction. 
So lately we've made quite a few projects that are very reliant on technology. And some of that's like really new, cutting edge technology that wouldn't have been possible three years ago. And some of that's stuff that we could have made on a Walkman in the 80s if we'd not been children at that time. So it's a range of how new that technology is, but it's always using the technology to prompt the audience into some kind of action or interaction or let them have an experience that they wouldn't be able to have in the same way if there were live performers present, I think. For us, it's, it's always about a question that we want to ask, and then it's about finding the right form to do that with. So, you know, we did make a mini golf course last year as well, because that's not like the right way to tell that story. But I suppose since starting to work with Joe, it feels like those questions about, I suppose, content and form are sort of progressing along together. Some of the time it's it's about a thematic question, but sometimes it's like, oh, but this technology would allow us to do this, and, and what would be the right question to fit within that structure? So I, I think in a way, maybe how we've worked has changed a bit. I suppose as we've become more literate in what's possible. I think in a way, having an awareness of what the technology can do allows your imagination to think of things that you might not let yourself imagine otherwise because you'd just be like, well, that's just not possible. Whereas when you have a sense of what's possible, you're like, oh, I could do this and could technology do this? Oh, I'll ask Joe. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, no, or maybe. "Mm, Yeah, sure, I'll do it. (laughs) The maybe ones are the most interesting ones in a way because it's like then we get to actually find out whether it's possible. I enjoy the maybe. It's the most fun for me trying to figure out is the crazy thing you asked actually possible? We didn't go straight from, oh, there's a play and the audience just sit there to the stuff that we make now. There There is a sort of gradual change. But I think for us, the real turning point came in 2015 when we made a piece called Invisible Treasure. The question that started it was about how you relate to invisible systems. So like in the past, power was really visible, really evident, like it was a castle on a hill and a bunch of knights or whatever. But now, where do you locate the internet, the financial markets, electricity, all of the, all of these systems that really influence our lives? So we wanted to make a piece which explored people's complicity with and agency within invisible systems. So we're like, well, if it's about invisible systems, we can't have a bunch of actors running around. So it was almost... The, the question dictated the form that piece had to take. And so that ended up being a massive white room with a two-metres-high rabbit with uh, flashing eyes in the corner and a load of sensor and projection technology, which meant that a group of 20 people would uh, respond to stimuli about, I guess, how they wanted that mini-temporary society to run over about an hour. Yeah, and then once we... I mean... I should probably say that like, it wasn't a wholly successful piece. It was one of those things where I think probably about 60% of it worked. But I don't think the audience always noticed. But it, it sort of having done that, it was the steepest learning curve in the world because making work like that, it, just the rhythms are so different to making theatre. You know, at that point, we just had no idea. We, would, we weren't working with Joe at that point and we would say to the computational artists we were working with, oh, could we just try this, change this? And they'd be like, sort of pull a face and we'd be like, what's their problem? And then they'd be like, yeah, but that's half a day's work to change that. Whereas with an actor, you can just be like, oh, could you just try that a bit different? It was amazing in, in, in one way because we suddenly were like, there's all these tools and, and you can create these incredible transformative experiences for audiences. And almost 
stopping using them after that would have been like deciding to paint without using the colour blue. Like, we knew it was there, and we just had to figure out how to work with it in a way that nobody had a breakdown. I think one thing that's really interesting is, like, in traditional theatre, I guess, you might ask, what would I do in the situation of that character? Would I make those choices? Would I respond in that way? Whereas in the work that we make now, you can actually ask yourself, how did I react to that situation? And what does that mean? And how, how do I feel about that? So it's just a slightly more immediate exploration of yourself sometimes as an audience member. That sounds very serious. Our work is often quite funny. <laughs> We learned to test really early, and that was something with Invisible Treasure we didn't do, which now I look back and I'm just like, what were we thinking? You know, so like testing really early and also making sort of paper prototype versions so that you're testing the mechanics before you invest in any of the technology, rather than being like, yeah, let's build this really expensive thing, and like, oh, crap, people don't understand what they're being asked to do. We get more and more used to the ways in which some software things that you think might take ages are really fast and some software things which you think will be really fast take ages and so just knowing to ask those questions rather than assume the rhythm of a certain thing or in fact just allow time for it to take a long time. But I think also that's one of the advantages about building a collaboration and working with Joe over time which is that I think that so many sort of arts and tech projects are, are sort of forged over an application form or something like that so that the relationship is very new and everybody's trying to get on really nicely together but sort of frightened of asking the questions and so I think that if the relationship feels solid then I think you can take risks with the project more. but it really feels like with a lot of projects where you've only just started working with those people everything is a risk and there's no shared language and I think that's a real problem. So that's a little bit about Dan, Rachel and Fanchen. But who is their collaborator, Joe? Let's find out a bit about him. I didn't start off just with an idea that I was going to learn programming for art's sake. So I, I, I learnt uh, to be quite a traditional artist. Both my parents were artists. They taught me traditional mediums like sculpture, painting. Really, to be honest, I wanted to annoy a teacher I had in secondary school who pretty much told me that I would never program in my life and I shouldn't be bothered about it. So I wanted to prove him wrong because I'm that kind of person and taught myself programming at about 12 as a kind of hobby. And then that developed into a kind of a tech blog of kind of interesting news and things like that from a teenager's perspective, which was quite fun. And then I started to realise kind of in my late teens, just kind of before sixth form and university, that the two mix really well. I suppose it was a piece that I saw by Random International, which was, I can't remember the name of the piece, it's awful, but there were mirrors that were mounted on gyros that kind of made sure that the mirrors always faced you yourself. So you moved around the room and these mirrors reflect light into your face. And it was just that kind of moment where I was like, this is cool. I roughly understand how to do this. Can I make this? And of course, everyone told me no. And then I decided to make that my, my life decision to prove them wrong, which ended up going into university, studying computational arts at Goldsmiths, because at the time, Goldsmiths was one of the only universities that really offered that course. It's now everywhere, but that was really the only one out there. And then I realised that 
it was remarkably fun. And I managed to vent a lot of my anger at privacy and Theresa May during my early years at university by creating very political artworks about how things like the Snoopers Charter was the worst thing in the world and trying to convince people to listen through exciting artwork. And that really sent me to the path that was then before the Justice Syndicate and before starting to work with you two. And how did the three of you meet? That was Theo's yeah, fault. Yeah, it's Theo's fault. So Theo's one of Joe's lecturers, but mm. also an artist in his own right, and we sort of chatted about some things, and, and we had this vague idea of what became the Justice Syndicate, and Theo was like, oh, no, I think I know the person you should work with on this, and, and we met up with Joe in the Ritzy in Preston, yeah. and we, we both went to other people and went, and we were like, oh, are you Joe? And Paul lad was like, no. I had a huge conversation <laughs> with someone who I still have no idea who it was. So, so, yeah. And Theo was a big part, for me anyway, of starting to understand all the different things that technology would do. So we spent quite a lot of time with Theo and Tom, his collaborator, sort of going, what can different things do? And they would, like, show us videos and, like, oh, this thing can do this and this thing can do this. And so how could we express this idea with technology? And So, yeah, that was really empowering for me, I think, to start to understand what, what's out there and what can be done. Did you meet specifically for the Justice Syndicate? Yeah, it was purely for the thing that was called something very different at that time. Theo was just very enthusiastic about it, which typically Theo is very enthusiastic about most things. But he came to me in particular being like, you've got to meet these guys and try this thing out. And then we just went from there, really. Through that process of collaboration, it, it's become, I think, more of an, a nuanced thing than it was in that first conversation. So although the idea was there, I think it's, it's very different. Now. Yeah, I suppose that the third leg that we should sort of acknowledge in that was that we had been working with a neuroscientist called Chris DeMeyer. So the Justice Syndicate came out of this... Chris wanting to explore a very particular aspect of social psychology and going, could this be done through some sort of audience-centric theatre thing that uses tech? So those were kind of the three sort of roots into what it became. And I guess in terms of how our collaborations <laughs> developed, early on, and certainly in the early weeks of working on the Justice Syndicate, it was very much Joe being like, OK, so what do you need me to do technologically? Mm-hmm. Yes, I can build that. No, I can't build that. We were quite sort of narrow in what our jobs were. Whereas I think over that project and then on the projects that we've been developing since, it's much more... Not everyone does everything because I can't code, but much more like we all involved in the sort of creative and narrative decisions and then we'll set each other tasks and then go away and, and work on bits and then bring them back together. The first piece of work that Dan, Rachel and Joe worked on is called The Justice Syndicate. Now, I'm actually going to go see The Justice Syndicate at the Battersea Art Centre when it's on in February. And if you're listening to this before then, I'd encourage you to look up to see if there are tickets available. It's quite limited because it's only 12 people per performance. But if you can go, I'm sure you'll find it really enjoyable. But what is the performance or the game or the interactive piece of theatre? or whatever you want to call it. So the Justice Syndicate is a piece of playable theatre for 12 people, and the 12 people are jurors uh, considering a fictional case, and during game, whatever you want to call it, they review evidence that they get on tablet devices, so there's like audio and video, documents, that kind of thing. And then they're also discussing with the rest of the group whether they think that the accused is guilty or not guilty. 
happens is that people, even though they know it's fictional, gradually get really, really invested in mm. this decision. And in a way, it's a very simple mechanic. You have one decision to make. Is he guilty or not guilty? And you get given this evidence, and then you get prompted to discuss it. So it's really, really simple. But there's something about the way in which that decision becomes invested with importance that people get very engaged and very engaged in the reviewing of the evidence and very engaged in the discussions with each other. And those discussions often become really robust or they're always polite. And people seem to find that that really interesting and that opportunity to wrestle with big questions and big topics with a group of strangers is actually quite a rare opportunity to have. And there's something really interesting as well about a jury in that you kind of have a shared goal, which is making the right decision. So although you might disagree with each other, there's a value to that disagreement because actually we all want to make the right decision. And I suppose that was a starting point for the show when we were first thinking about it. It was sort of in that run-up to the Brexit vote and all of the Trump stuff was kicking off. And it it just felt that there was this massive sort of polarisation effect taking place and that it was very easy to dismiss people who didn't share your opinions and values and actually quite easy to exclude them from your life physically and as and online and so it was very much about how can we get a group of strangers to have a discussion about something meaningful potentially with people who don't share experiences and the jury format grew out of that because that's what you get in real life right it's like a bunch of 12 people and they could be anyone but you have to be here you have to sit around this table and you have to make the right decision because it's going to have a big impact on someone's life And then the research that Chris does is kind of about the neuroscience and social psychology of the formation of opinion. So he's really interested in things like cognitive bias and a number of other phenomena that I'm not equipped to explain. But it just felt that through structuring the case in a certain way and introducing different bits of evidence at different points, we could really start to play with how the group would make that decision and where the subgroups would emerge and and, and at what point people's opinions would solidify and when they'd be swayed. And, and stuff like that and I suppose that's where some of the work that we couldn't even have imagined around the machine learning that takes place sort of came about Should I detail any of that? I don't know, <laughs> is it, is it's it a secret? Well it's always that kind of line where you, you don't want to ruin the no. show by revealing too much which I think is something that I found particularly hard with the Just Syndicate because I want to say look at this amazing technology we have but actually it's more come and just see how fluidly people talk But I suppose we use the machine learning a lot to try and just make sure there is a consistent discussion. It's it's never to push one way, it's never to inform someone's decision, it's purely to make sure that people have the opportunities to discuss their own values freely. It's one of those kind of perfect things where we developed it and as we saw it progress and get further and further to its current state, we see it get smoother and we see the discussion become more elegant and you had no recollection of the technology. Someone came out of it before and said, I almost forgot that we were using iPads, which for me was the golden phrase. It was what I always wanted. I want it to feel like it's it's not a hindrance, it's just a, it's like a pen and paper. It's about the, the people in the room. It's about the people in the room, not the technology, but the technology does help yeah. with quite a lot of that. But yes, it sort of almost relates to our background as theatre directors in a way, and that part of your aim as a theatre director is to disappear and just let people experience the story and the play. And 
And in a way, what we try to design with the Justice Center is a technology that's really smart and really intuitive, but that you stop really paying attention to because you're just interested in these documents, these videos, this conversation I'm having, and the iPad is just a a way of facilitating. Yeah, and I suppose that was one of the most different and quite exciting things about working on this piece. And the difference between my prior work where... If I was doing installation art, it's all about looking and trying to make people interested in technology and interact with technology, but this was like the opposite. It was how do you make technology blend in to something that's happening and let that take the forefront of the conversation. And that was the most fun I think I've ever had in, in creating a piece so far. Stupid things like changing, studying how people are tapping things and then just <laughs> going back and spending maybe three weeks designing a different way for people to tap things so that they can just do it and forget about it. That kind of crazy levels of fine-tuning, which is remarkably fun and also awful. A lot of the kind of computational art that I see seems to be saying, look, I've done this because it can be done and it's really clever. Like, we went to Oz Electronica and I was walking around being like, um, like, yeah, I mean, sure, great, probably fine, you know, and then having to read some massive tract about why the person had done it. And I think that's a really different approach and maybe sort of if you come from a, a gallery-based practice background, maybe that's more, I guess, intuitive to you. But I, I think for us, it's always about the meaning and the, the, what the audience take away from it. And in a way, it's quite thankless because, like Joe said, you're sort of trying to make yourself invisible. So no one's ever going to be like, oh, this amazing thing that happened or whatever, which is fine. But sometimes I'm a bit like, no, we did some stuff. And the fact that it's invisible means it works. <laughs> I guess the thing that's worth saying about Justice Syndicate as well is at the end, once you've made your decision as a jury there's a kind of a debrief which Chris normally facilitates where you reflect on the social psychology of the dynamics in the room and and the discussions that happened and then you're given some sort of key concepts and some some brief stuff to read to go away with if you want to so you can kind of extrapolate from that one event some kind of principles that might be interesting in terms of how you look at uh, life or politics. And to, and also compare your experience with other people's. Yeah. That's one of the things we, we, we know with audience-centric stuff. People are so fascinated in what other groups did. What happened yesterday? What did they decide? I think that giving people that is, is sort of another layer that's really nice to do. I guess there's maybe some kind of interesting connection to that and in interactive fiction, I know there's a lot of interest in replay and replayability, like the pleasure of playing something again and again, making different choices and doing different things. And in a way, people don't tend to come and do this again, but they're really interested in what other people did and, and in the other possibilities of how things can, can go. I think that's a lot of the curiosity people have about this kind of work. We basically had a set of record cards and wrote down all of the pieces of evidence that we could have and all of the things that they might lead people to think about and we then we split them up between things that would push them to think it was guilt he was guilty and things that would to think he was not guilty and then sort of started going, Well if we put that there and that there, what would happen? And then went away and wrote all of the testimonies, which I guess was a bit like sort of writing monologues really mm. in a sort of quite traditional theatre way. 
and then tried it with some of our long-suffering collaborators. <laughs> like, As a paper prototype. Yeah. So we would be we would sit and read the text or give them a piece of paper with some information on, and then they would vote by writing yes or no, holding up, you know, really... And no ask them when they were bored and, and mm-hmm. you know, what changed their mind if it, or brought them close to changing their mind. I think we were quite lucky with Justice Syndicate. I think 70% of what we wrote stayed in. Yeah, there was a bit of changing of emphasis and one bit of evidence got cut and stuff like that. But it wasn't... Yeah, we were quite lucky in that it mainly what? worked. <laughs> <laughs> Which doesn't always happen, yeah. From the games culture, there is much more of an iterative user-testing kind of model that's more dominant for us than it used to be. Yeah, and I think also it's much easier to see when it doesn't work. (laughs) Like, if it's a a normal play and people look a bit bored, that could just be their face. You know, (laughs) whereas if it's an audience-centric piece and people don't know what to do, then it will die. And that's a really super useful thing to happen. I think one of the things that we've got much better at is is being clearer in what we need from feedback because I think where my frustration with the scratch culture in theatre is that people, theatre makers don't always ask the best questions, they ask things like, oh what did you like, what would you like to see more of, and whenever I get that on a form I write like, a dog, you know I'd love to see a dog, more Hmm. of a dog, everyone loves dogs it doesn't mean it's going to make that piece better so so I think it's about really honing the questions of, of what you need from that test audience and in a way yeah, when they're playing it, it's, it's much, much easier to see. It's an alleged sexual assault case, and we started making it before any of the Me Too stuff blew up. I would really love for the show to be totally irrelevant right now, for us to be like, do you know what, we're just not going to do that show anymore. But... It just seems that every time we play it, there's another layer of relevance. So, like, we, we did... The, the shows we did at York Mediale were, like, the day after the Kavanagh testimonies, mm. and that just felt so present in the room. Yeah, I hope one day there'll be a day when we're like, do you know what? Everybody just knows how to disagree civilly, and there's no problem with any of these themes. We're just going to can the piece. Like, the patriarchy has been dismantled. <laughs> it's all fine. Um, but yeah and it also I think for us it still stays really interesting because each audience is is interesting and brings up different themes or focuses on different bits of evidence or the group dynamic is somehow different so we don't get bored at all of doing it in the way that I have got slightly bored of some other things I've made in the past that are more fixed yeah. yeah it's really quite wonderful to be in the room especially when after things like the Kavanaugh and you just hear people's conversations and the topics that come up. It's quite quite fun and quite sobering as well. <laughs> so for me, it's one of two things. It's either like, oh my God, the people of the UK should not be allowed to try yes. anybody ever. Please don't <laughs> let these people ever have to try me. Or you get some juries who are just amazing and, and it sounds a bit maybe idealistic, but just fill you with kind of hope for humanity. When you see people really try and like interrogate stuff and, and even to people who they're disagreeing with being like, no, convince me, you tell yeah. me why, I need to understand why you think that then that, that's amazing. And you just think if we could do that on a grander scale, we wouldn't you know, be in this mess that we're in. For me, one of the most amazing and terrifying experiences was when we had secret jurors who were law professionals in, in Dundee. <laughs> 
And then we had this beautiful, like someone, someone was reading out a statement and it was so beautifully read. And I was convinced that they was they were in law in some way. And Joe was texting me, being like, "God, this woman's really good. She should be, she should be a barrister." Yeah, it was like read with so much <laughs> conviction. I started to understand and like believe her. And and then she revealed at the end that quite a lot the of them were a stereotypical barrister. Because there's a bit where an audience member has to read the summing up statement for the, the defence and the prosecution, and she just did it amazingly. We were like, okay, yeah, drop the mic now. Yeah. And, then, and then she said she could have written a better one, and I was like, all right. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose the other thing to say is that the, the format or the platform or whatever we call it, it has already had other applications and it will in the future, because basically what it allows you to do is present a group of people with information in a way that adds complexity over time and asks them to make decisions. So we made a piece just before Christmas, which was a sort of pilot for the Cabinet Office to explore what people might do in the case of a national power failure. Because obviously that's something that's quite hard for people to imagine. So by sort of immersing them in this story that we created around a fictional national power failure that happened in the past, the idea is that maybe the answers that they give about what they would do would be more accurate. The things that we found out about national power failure for another time, but let's just hope it doesn't happen because it's very bad. (laughs) There's kind of three things that we know we're going to use it for, and then maybe others. We also want to do a two-room version. So now it's like 12 jurors in one room, but we want to create some sort of scenario where there's two groups trying to reach some sort of you know, negotiation or whatever. So they're, they're with their own group in their room, and then at moments they'll probably send partial decisions to the other group and how that will work. That's what I'm really excited about. And that won't be a sexual assault case. That would no, be something very different. Very different. <laughs> it's possibly more around diplomacy or, yeah, something like that. So we are working on the Justice Syndicate offshoot, but we're also trying to carve out time to do something which isn't that, because it feels like, actually, at the moment, we could do that for the rest of our lives, which is weird. So at the moment, we are making a piece called Looking for Love, which is, I suppose, a piece of interactive digital fiction, which is co-written with AI, and it takes the form of a dating app. And you know from the off that it's not a real person. You don't think there's an actor on the end. But the idea is that over two weeks you play it on your phone, you match, chat, develop this relationship with this person, entity. And it's kind of about the appeal of personalisation and and whether actually AI could be a better listener than your boyfriend. (laughs) So I think we're finding it really interesting because it in a way is, is mixing what we do, which I guess is story and narrative, and then what... Joe does, which is magic with data. That's what you do, right? Oh, yeah, that's, yeah. My, that's on my business card. <laughs> magic with data. It's really new for us because we've never made something where the people are not all in a room together. So that's mm-hmm. really new challenges. But like, most of our work is a maximum of two hours, and that's a very different kind of nature of the timed experience over something that you play for 10, 15 minutes a day, every day for two weeks. is really different, and I'm really enjoying that as being something. Different. And it yeah. does feel that people have such a relationship with their phone, and, and you know, it's it's the thing you look at last at night and first thing in the morning. And and if as artists we're not exploring what that platform enables us to do, then we're sort of we've missed a trick. I think I have moments where I'm like, oh, it's going to be amazing, and moments where I'm like, how will this work? <laughs> but I think that's probably the same as most projects. Yeah, I'd say so. Judge on Sunday, tell it to him, leave me alone. 
to the church on Sunday, you can call him at home. Better get out of my side, boy. I tell you I'm a busy man. Tell it to the judge on Sunday and I'll do what you can. So that was Dan, Rachel and Joe talking about audience-centric theatre and, in particular, their production of The Justice Syndicate. As I mentioned earlier, I will be going to see The Justice Syndicate at the Battersea Arts Centre next month. If you can, you should go too. Although, if not, well, why not encourage an arts venue near you to put it on? Yeah, book the show. (laughs) (laughs) For me, this was the first time that I interviewed three people together on a podcast. Personally, I felt that it worked well, but as always, I'm keen to hear what you think too. So if you do have some feedback about the show or suggestions for people for us to get to speak on it in the future, then make sure you get in touch. The best way is to tweet us on at Technique UK. Also on the subject of feedback, there are a couple of really easy free things that you can do to help us out. The first is to spread the word about these podcasts. You can tweet about us or share a link about us online. Whatever you do, it really helps. Plus, subscribing and giving us a review on iTunes is really key. If you give us a five-star review, for instance, it can really help make sure that we appear as recommendations for other people. So it's massively appreciated. Anyway, enough of that. Mainly, thank you for listening. We will be back next month with a new episode and hopefully every month throughout the year. But in the meantime, thank you as always to Sean Miller for the music throughout this episode. Plus that last song was by the Long Riders and it was called Tell It to the Judge on Sunday. Lastly, all I can say is thank you again for listening and we will speak to you in a month's time. In the meantime, take very good care of yourselves. Design thinking has exploded into the workplace of the 21st century, putting humans at the heart of design. Or does it? Isn't it just the post-it note workshops? More importantly though, where did it come from? How did it become such a massive industry? And where on earth is it going? Is design thinking what is taught in design schools? And can it be used as a philosophy for the future? Find out more as we, Richard Adams and Sam Fry, explore these ideas with experts in the field on our first Technique mini-series about design thinking. Subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss an episode.